Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about me, Danny Moran. I'm an underachieving high school student from California who's not so good at nerd stuff like maths, but is awesome at skateboarding. My mom and dad don't get me, and the only person in my family I relate to is my adopted Vietnamese brother, Sam. Sam's a pretty great guy who works as a shipping clerk for the Vietnamese Anti-Communist Relief Fund, an organization whose stated purpose is to send medical supplies to Vietnam. Anyway, things take a turn for the worse when Sam is discovered hanging in his room. The cops say it's suicide, but I know something's up. I befriend the head of the VACRF's daughter, Tina, and together we uncover a conspiracy where the VACRF is actually a front for for an illegal arms dealing operation that Sam discovered and was subsequently murdered to cover up. Everything climaxes in an exciting skateboard sequence where I save Tina from being shot by knocking the gun out of the hand of the man who was going to shoot her with my skateboard is what I would be saying if this was a pod adaptation of the 1989 Christian Slater classic, Gleaming the Cube. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about <laughs> and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is my idealistic but fatally naive bro, Sam Foster. <laughs> Do you ever worry that these fake-out intros are getting over-elaborate? <laughs> That's the actual plot. I, I took out a significant... I only did the first act in the last right. ten minutes. Yeah. This week on Film Chat, Danny and I wade into the ongoing debate over whether Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is a bad film or the worst film of all time. Most critics have wailed on it like Batman taking a sledgehammer to a bus tyre. But what about us? Did we hate it like Superman appears to hate saving people? Or love it like Lex Luthor loves forcing sweeties into other people's mouths? Stay tuned to find out. Danny managed to see another film this week with an arguably even more unwieldy title, comedy nuptials sequel, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2, which promised to wash away all of Zack Snyder's gloomy mythological angst in a wave of cheerful ethnic stereotypes. Later on, he'll tell us if he understood the film or if it was all wedding to him. We also discuss the post-X Machina collaboration between Alex Garland and Oscar Isaac and Sofia Coppola's upcoming remake of a sexy Clint Eastwood movie. And we also make up for last week's lackluster punning on the theme of the Beatles meets the tiresome Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. All that should leave just enough time for me to come up with an evil scheme even more convoluted and nonsensical than Lex Luthor's in Batman v Superman. Wait, sorry. 
there won't be enough time for that actually it would take years it is probably impossible oh getting in early <laughs> with the review there i'm just trying to keep it ambiguous whether it's positive or negative <laughs> Exciting news. I think we have another genuine fan. Or at least one more, more listener who we don't know. Unless Steph has dropped off. Steph, are you still there, actually? Steph? Our friend from Bangkok, Steph Mildina, has not made an appearance for a while. Steph? I think we might have dropped out of the top four film podcasts. Yeah. Well, anyway, we don't need Steph's love in the time being because we have a new guy we don't know. His name is Greg Hiller, and he commented on our Podomatic page. What did he say, Danny? He said, I think they made a movie at the last minute, decided to put Cloverfield at the end. John Goodman was very good in this. He's talking about 10 Cloverfield Lane, which we reviewed last week. And he seems to agree with us. Thanks. The only thing that concerns me is whether he didn't actually listen. He just noticed that it was about that. And he was like, here's my view and just put it. Do you think that's possible? Yes. Well, I guess if he listens to the next episode, he'll, he'll have to right in because we've called we've, him out we'll spend a while we spent a while discussing him personally greg Hiller. it might scare him off the way it may have done to poor steph Moltina. yeah but uh <laughs> but greg if you're listening welcome welcome and stick with us we love you good point about cloverfield also film chat fan i assume <laughs> olivia wearing messaging on twitter everyone's using these unorthodox Communication yes, normally get Twitter or Podomatic messages. And uh, yeah, she had some things to say about the witch. She's gone in for you a few plot spotters here, so I'll just redact those as okay. necessary. Saw the witch. Here are some notes. Beautifully shot nonsense because the main and and she that a goat. Everything else is enjoyable. Got it. Well, that's a very insightful comment. I assume I understood nothing. It's very insightful. It's a shame no one... That's redacted. That's like the CIA torture report of uh, film chat comments. Political. What? So political. But it seemed broadly positive from the bits that I heard. Except yeah. for the word nonsense. Well, not only is it spoilerific, but it's quite negative. Is it? Yeah. So even though we can't really discuss what she said in detail, from the perspective of someone who's read her comment and has seen the film, what do you make of her critiques? Do you agree? No. <laughs> Can you elaborate or is that impossible? I think the movie obeys a certain logic, which if you're not on board with, I can see how you wouldn't enjoy the film. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wink. Wink, wink. Nod, nod. Wink, Olivia. Jake Hoskins got in touch with us. He says, interesting that you guys mentioned Superman's sense of humor in the same episode as Kramer from Seinfeld, as there's actually a scene in Seinfeld where Jerry and George discussed the exact same thing. And here is a clip Oh, that's it. Well, I, I think Superman probably has a very good sense of humor. 
I never heard him say anything really funny. But it's common sense. He's got super strength, super speed. I'm sure he's got super humor. I think that, but you know, either you're born with a sense of humor or you're not. It's not going to change. Even if you go from the red sun of Krypton all the way to the yellow sun of the Earth. <laughs> Why? Why would that one area of his mind not be affected by the yellow sun of the Earth? I don't know. But he ain't funny. Very good. Classic Seinfeld. I'm glad that Jake's getting in touch to drop in a few Seinfeld references. Yeah, just so we know it's him. That's the main main thing this uh, podcast has been missing. He also says, Also, I'd like to put forward my own suggestion for a versus film. One is a nerdy comic book geek with a serious crush on a girl with some troublesome exes. The other is a ragtag bunch of Puritans driven from 17th century Europe by persecuting monarchs. That's right. It's Scott Pilgrim versus the Pilgrims. Not just any Pilgrims, but the Pilgrims from the smash hit 1979 TV movie Mayflower, The Pilgrim's Adventure, starring, I shit you not, Anthony Hopkins. Wow. Have you seen that? Of course. No, I haven't seen it. Normally, I would say that Scott Pilgrim would probably lose to the Pilgrims just purely by weight of numbers. But in his own film, Scott Pilgrim does manage to defeat seven evil exes. Yeah. So, you know, two of them at once. The Pilgrims are actually quite cowardly, aren't they? Because they fled Europe. So Yeah, fucking pussy think... <laughs> America is a bunch, a nation of absolute pussy Yeah, founded by cowards <laughs> who didn't stay to fight. What about our huge American contingent of our audience? Uh, Wait, you're half American, so it's fine. You can slag off your home country. Exactly. It's like converting to Judaism for the jokes, you know? Yeah. I can say what I want about the stupid Yanks. Because <laughs> I am half Yank. Lastly, Jake says, on the subject of nautical Beatles tunes, I can't believe you overlooked Octopus's Garden or their seminal album about a female Oz woe man, Abby Road. And he spelled Road R-O-W-E-D. Really need to read that one for it to work well. But that's a good point about Octopus's Garden. Yeah. That's at least as nautical as Yellow Submarine. Yeah. Yeah. We missed it. Missed that one. Yeah, and on that subject, I think we were both probably quite ashamed of ourselves last week. Disgusted. Horrified um, at our own behavior because confronted with a golden opportunity to make some puns about the Beatles and Pirates of the Caribbean because Paul McCartney is cameoing in the next Pirates of the Caribbean film. We just drew a blank, drew a big old blank. So a couple of our listeners have stepped in. I was Jake doing that just now. And also Callum Russell got in touch to suggest Paul McCartney is going to be sailing back to the USSR. Very good. Pretty good. Also something about pieces of eight days a week, which is very good. Nice. And I want to hold your hook. Also I want to hold good. your hook. Uh, hook. Uh, I want to hold your hook. Um, and Georgia suggests Blackbeard singing in the dead of night. Which is pretty good. I was doing the yeah. Glee version there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're doing the Kurt from Glee version. I was doing, that was the that was how Kurt from Glee would sing it. <laughs> I'm glad this has come back around because, in the you know, driven by shame, I've been doing some punning. Yeah, you always do your best best punning work driven by shame. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, do you want to hear my yeah? Beatles lay, lay them on me, please. Hey, Sea Dog. Yes, good. Hey, Sea Dog. If you could sing them all, that would be best. The uh, Bloon Lane. Instead of Penny Lane? Dubloon Lane. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like a pirate coin. Buccaneer Comes the Sun. <laughs> That's very good. Yo Ho Ho Darling. Uh, yeah. Yo Ho Ho Darling. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Very good. The Ballad of Long John Silver and Yoko. <laughs> uh, Get Jack. Bracket Sparrow. 
Great. Get Jack! I'm just going to do... I just give it like two second bursts of each one, shall I? Sparrow! <laughs> um, happiness is some warm rum. Wow, that's really good. Thanks. Wow, you've really been... Uh, ahoy goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that also works as Mr. You Burns. You say goodbye, uh, and I say ahoy. <laughs> and finally, I today... Because pirates say I instead of yes. <laughs> I had I had my own for yesterday. I today. But that's good, yes. My one was treasure chest today. Oh, that's better. That makes more sense. Yeah, but I only did one and you did, like, tons of brilliant ones. That Whoa. was excellent, man. Thanks, man. Good work. I'm spent. Champion. That's going to be the pinnacle of this week's podcast. I probably shouldn't have done so much singing. I'm going to be embarrassed by the singing later, I feel. That was great. That was good quality. Blackbeard singing in the dead of night. <laughs> Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Spooky, sexy sci-fi news. Oscar Ooh. Isaac, who recently, uh, well he's been in pretty much every film recently, Yeah, including Ex Machina directed by Alex Garland, which he received some acclaim for, and that was also a pretty well-received movie, although not so well-received on Film Chat by Danny Moran, the most eminent critic around. Anyway, these two hot guys are re-teaming for another science fiction film called Annihilation, which is an adaptation of a book by Jeff Vandermeer, the first part of his Southern Reach trilogy. Oh, wow. What's your favourite part of the Southern Reach trilogy Ooh, by Jeff Vandermeer? the fourth Van- part. The fourth part is... <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> it's but the second part is also very good. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've never heard of him or that. No, me neither. Also aboard this project, Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, and Tessa Thompson. Sexy ladies and one hot dude. <laughs> yeah, it's actually nice, you know, I guess that's just a higher proportion of women than in your average, like, Absolutely. Hollywood film, um, which is quite cool. Tessa Thompson is the one from Creed and um, Dear White People, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's quite cool as well. Um, the plot, like a lot of sci-fi projects, the plot just sounds faintly ridiculous when described. Um, and this is the synopsis on Empire Online, which includes the phrase Area X a lot. <laughs> so get ready for that. Vandermeer's book chronicles an expedition into a mysterious remote and sealed off zone known as Area X. For 30 years, Area X has been labelled by the government as an environmental disaster zone, despite all appearances to the contrary. I guess it's like a lot of rabbits gambling, beautiful golden <laughs> meadow kind of thing. And for all that time, a secret agency called the Southern Reach has monitored Area X and sent in expeditions to try to discover the truth. Some expeditions have suffered terrible consequences. Others have reported nothing out of the ordinary. Now, as it appears to be changing and, and perhaps expanding, the next investigation will attempt to succeed where all others have failed. Rhetorical question time. What is happening in the zone? What is the true nature of the invisible border that surrounds it? Portman will be a biologist looking for answers to her husband's disappearance as part of an earlier expedition. She and her colleagues soon discover, though it looks peaceful, all is definitely not what it seems, and that they're being manipulated. Who wrote this shit? It's <laughs> nonsense. So <laughs> so that just sounds sort of confusing and generic at the same time. But Yeah. I mean, I was a little down ex machina. But it was a very ideas-driven movie. Yeah. And this is like a big ideas-driven blockbuster. Yeah, I guess anything where the whole... It's mystery, so you can't really describe... Yeah. It depends on what's in the Area X, you know? And I really like Oscar Isaacs. Well, everyone likes him now. He's so... Yeah. I liked him before Star Wars. Yes. I liked him when I saw Drive. I liked him in Robin Hood. (laughs) (laughs) And also because my big problems with Alec 
Alex Garland. I was going to say Ex Machina, but Alex Garland, the man. His stupid face, yeah. and he's too small, <laughs> and he has tiny hands. Um, is that his scripts have this similar problems, but this is an adaptation, so maybe what well, I think he has common third act problems. Oh yeah, but that's maybe true. this will have a killer third act. They just import from the book. Yeah, yeah. He'll be better adapting someone else's material. He did that adaptation of Never Let Me Go. I never saw that movie or never read that book, so I have no idea what the quality of that was whatsoever. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, it's all up for grabs. Yeah. It sounds like it could be good fun. The I cast, wish, at least, will yeah, be solid. Yeah. I wish Oscar Isaac's anything, Me even too. X-Men Apocalypse. But it looks- hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. It's like shit. (laughs) So talking of ladies with one sexy dude uh <laughs> another film in that genre is the beguiled which is a early 70s western ish it's kind of like a western chamber piece i guess you call it starring clint eastwood uh, and directed by don siegel who was the guy who did dirty harry and sophia coppola wants to remake it and she's got nicole kidman on board along with Elle fanning and kirsten dunst two which she's what with before? Yes, they will all be beguiled. They will all be beguiled. The plot is basically, well, in the original, Cleanswood is this uh, Union soldier who ends up who's like either deserted battle or he's been wounded. You're not quite sure what's happened, and he's um, he turns up at this boarding school where it's just women there, and there's like headmistress and teachers and students, and all the ladies take a little liking to Clint. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? And it's a very sort of psychological, very seventies movie. Like this, they don't really make films like this anymore, and it's a very interesting, non-Clint Eastwood like performance where it's really playing on his um, sort of screen persona. It's like a sort of macho guy, but he ends up in this like female-centric environment, and it's like you think he's got the upper hand, but maybe the ladies do. And is that, it like and they're sort of conniving against each other, and it's sort it of like, Freudian um, stuff. It's like that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where Michael Palin ends up at <laughs> Castle Anthrax, and all the nuns like try to have sex with him. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much but like a 70s drama yeah exactly yeah, that was it, done seriously yeah that sounds good so that's like it's I don't know it's a really good movie so I wonder what you'd uh, do to the remake apparently Sophia Coppola a bit Virgin Suicide is about female friendships and she likes movies about people in one place so is the bling ring yeah also one, a bad gaggle of ladies yeah people in one location and gaggle of ladies it's right up her alley yeah the yeah. interesting thing will be who plays the Clint Eastwood role because that's like the most uh, key role. And it's hard because it's the role is playing on his screen persona. It's like, who is the modern day Clint Eastwood? You know? Scott Eastwood? Scott Eastwood? Just get his son to do it. Yeah, he looks well, exactly very like good, him. He's very good looking. Yeah. He's a crazily good looking man. Sophia Coppola is someone who I feel still has a reputation as a kind of interesting art house director, even though she hasn't made any well-reviewed films since Lost in Translation. Well, yeah, they always sort of like come out with like a smattering of good reviews, but then don't really live on much past the release know. date. The Bling Ring didn't that get quite slated? And Maybe. Like, I mean, Marion Antoinette was pretty terrible. People really didn't like Marion Antoinette, and I didn't think Somewhere made much impact at all. 
I like Lost in Translation, although I haven't seen it in many years. Um, so I would need to see it again, you know, now that I'm smarter. Now that I'm smarter than I was. I guess maybe it's that thing to, to where... reaffirm my view of her. That sort of early noughties navel-gazing cinema is um, a bit fallen out of fashion. And yeah. some of those movies, people look back on them and be like, what was everyone going on about at the time? And it feels like Lost in Translation is... Gets oh. a lot of heat for that kind of movement. Yeah, I, I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if that's true. You'd have to rewatch it. Cool. I mean, it sounds good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm also a big Kirsten it. Dunst fan. Yeah. She was great in Fargo season two. She was amazing in Melancholia. Just but like, she, she's yeah. like uh, an awesome dramatic actress, and I feel like she really showed a lot of range, and people aren't tapping into it in the way they should be. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it Oscar-jingly poor? How did Danny form the judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, the biggest... And fattest release of the week, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. You love My Big Fat Greek Wedding, right, Sam? I love, yes, I love My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Ever since... I watch it every weekend with my parents. We get together, we put it on, and we have a great time. I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen it. Well, I have, and I you said that as a joke. That's what I actually do. And <laughs> since 2002, I'm like, when are they going to make a sequel? And now, 14 years later... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it was quite that old. Yeah, it's been quite a gap. Uh, they finally got to making a sequel. This is the official synopsis. Parenting and marriage is becoming tougher and tougher for Tula, played by Nia Vardolos. I assume she was the bride in the original. She was the bride and she's also the screenwriter. Not only has their relationship lost some of its spark, but also dealing with a rebellious teenage daughter who clashes with Greek traditions. On top of that, Tula must contend with aging parents and the endless needs of cousins and friends. When a shocking family secret comes to light, the entire Botocalus clan make plans to come together for an even bigger wedding than before. Here is a clip of uh, Tula talking with her sassy aunt about seducing her husband, going on date night, and rekindling the spark. Take your husband on a date. Don't worry about anything. Manayaya and I will stay with Paris. I'll talk to her. I'll scare her out of moving away from her family. No, Thea. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not really. Have fun. Laugh. Flirt. One rule, don't fight. Which means don't talk about your daughter. Remember, you were a girlfriend before you were a mother. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. Shade everything. So this is a very inoffensive, meandering comedy, which isn't really as funny as it needs to be, but gets passed on charm. After the first film came out, they briefly tried to make a sitcom version of it called My Big Fat Greek Life. My Big Fat Greek is the key component of the title, so, yeah. <laughs> um, which only lasted seven episodes uh, due to bad, uh, bad ratings. And that kind of makes sense, because the film reminded me of a sort of feature-length version of a very gentle, almost so gentle almost doesn't exist, uh, Sunday night family studio sitcom, if such a thing exists. Yeah. And uh, Tula's, the the sort of shocking secret that's referenced, I don't know why it's kept a secret in the synopsis, <laughs> is that uh, Tula's parents, their marriage certificate wasn't signed properly, so they don't actually marry, so they have to get remarried. And instead of a small ceremony, they have a big lavish wedding. Which is sort of the movie in a nutshell, in that there's not really enough story to propel the entire film, so there's a lot of plot. But the plot is pretty gentle stuff. So uh, Tula and her husband Ian's marriage has plateaued slightly, 
but they're sort of fine. And a few scenes are dedicated to that plot line, and their daughter feels a bit suffocated by the Greek family, but she's not, not too suffocated. A few scenes, and that's sort of resolved, and so on and so forth. And it's basically like a whole bunch of premises for TV episodes, sort of all jumbled in there. And like a TV show, it's sort of reliant on the same kind of jokes. And and it's got these weird callbacks to the first film, which I was just about remembering. I was like, that was literally, I haven't seen this movie for four, 14 years ago. <laughs> something about the uh, granddad was using Windex for everything. Okay. And thinking every word is a Greek word. It's a bit like a sort of goodness gracious me sketch. Right, elaborated yeah. upon. Yeah. But the slightly meandering subplots are anchored by a very straightforward and enjoyable structure in that it sets up there's going to be a wedding. At the end of the movie, there's a wedding, and there you go. You yeah. Know? And it's like any of those movies, like getting the band back together, you've cited the audience says at the beginning, the movie will end in this way, and it just moves towards that end goal, and you're like, fine. Probably seemed like a masterpiece of narrative clarity <laughs> after Batman v Superman. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe I've got, you know, roast-tinted goggles going into this one. So it's really hard to be down on this movie because its heart is really in the right place, and for all its cliches and stereotypes... It's um, just about family love, and it's quite sincere in its message. And the fact that's written by Nia Vidalis, and it draws from her experience as a second-generation Greek-American, you can sort of tell that's in there. And it feels like a personal movie, even though it's a bit generic at times. And it's also full of performances by really good uh, Greek actors who I just haven't seen in any films apart from the previous one. And they're like giving it their all and their performances are really charming. And maybe because they're not that famous, they really convince as a family. It's not like one of those Hollywood movies where you're like, why is Julia Roberts brothers with this guy? You yeah, know, yeah, not, yeah. They convince as a family and, you know, it's quite sweet. And the highlight is the grouchy patriarch. He's like a sort of one joke character, but this actor is amazing. This guy called Michael Constantine. And I was like, this guy's great. How old is he? And he's like 88 years old. Wow. That's just, that, just his age was impressive. And there's something great about this mainstream American comedy where one of the leads is an 88-year-old Greek man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, that's what separates it from sort of a studio movie, I guess. It's basically a broader, less funny version of the original, and I wouldn't bother seeking out in the cinema, but it's, you know, if it turns on TV, it's perfectly pleasant. But weirdly, it's got <laughs> slightly low. It's got 25% Rotten Tomatoes and Batman v Superman is 29%. And wow. I would say it's a much better film than Batman v Superman. Yeah. And if you, I feel like it's slightly hostile reception. Is like if, you, if you're a bit grumpy going in, you might be annoyed by all the cliches and the sort of Hallmark card style like TV movie of the week. But I just couldn't help. I couldn't dislike it. You know, it means so well. Yeah. I can't kick it. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join Share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak? Or do they interrupt each other? The light is on. The guys are in. So let the chat begin. Start talking now. So, Batman v Superman is probably the biggest movie to come out since The Force Awakens. Yeah. It's been marketed for about three years now. Anticipation's running extremely high, and it came out and was pretty much instantly set on by everyone in the world of film criticism. Um, this, I think it's 29% on Rotter Tomatoes is almost surprisingly high, given like the vitriol that's been poured on it by its opponents. So we'll get into it in a moment, but as far as you can make out what the hell's going on, this is what it's about. So 
So the opening of the movie is a kind of recap of the end of Man of Steel, which was criticised for the mass destruction and loss of innocent life um, visited on Metropolis by Superman and Zod in their big fight. And they're kind of dealing with that criticism now by replaying it from the perspective of Bruce Wayne, who is sort of looking around like, oh my God, this is awful, and like trying to save people and stuff like that. And then it jumps forwards 18 months, and Superman is basically a divisive figure in the United States. Some people view him as a god, and some people kind of fear him. And one of the people who views him as a threat is Bruce Wayne, um, and he starts to think about taking him out. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor is a kind of young, cackling, bizarre, <laughs> like um, sort of San Franciscan tech guy who runs a giant corporation that does something, and he's got a plan to do something, and his plot goes on. So here's a scene <laughs> of um, <laughs> um, Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent meeting at one of Lex Luthor's parties, and they exchange barbs. What's your position the bat vigilante in Gotham? Daily Planet. Wait, do I own this one? Or is that the other guy? Civil liberties are being trampled on in your city. Good people living in fear. Don't believe everything you hear, son. I've seen it, Mr. Wayne. He thinks he's above the law. The Daily Planet criticizing those who think they're above the law is a little hypocritical. What'd you say? Considering every time your hero saves a cat out of a tree, you read a puff piece editorial about an alien who, if he wanted to, could burn the whole place down. There wouldn't be a damn thing we could do to stop it. Most of the world doesn't share your opinion, Mr. Wayne. Maybe it's the Gotham City in me, and we just have a bad history with freaks dressed like clowns. Ooh. So, um, I had a lot of fun before going to see the movie reading all the negative reviews because people were really passionately and quite eloquently sticking the boot in and i had even more fun reading more reviews afterwards <laughs> and i couldn't really find a criticism of the movie that i disagreed with <laughs> i think that it will become a byword for bad blockbuster filmmaking yeah. i think like People will look back on, like, in, in future, like, it's just going to be the standard for, for a movie that went wrong completely. And in future blockbusters, they'll come out and people will be like, well, it did this almost as badly as Batman v Superman. It's a incoherent, unpleasant mess of a film. The plot makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> you could cut a lot of the scenes completely and have zero... Um, impact on the outcome of the story and like not just in like not just individual scenes but like long elaborate sequences could be taken out of the film and just it wouldn't matter the tone of it <laughs> is really miserable and gloomy and not in a kind of thoughtful exploratory christopher nolan way but just in a kind of teen sort of carving bullshit into their arm kind of a way it's yeah. just like really gloomy and the storytelling is um, not really clear enough for the movie to have a coherent message. But as far as you can discern a message, it seems to be opposed to the very idea of heroism. Like, <laughs> that is one of the messages of the film. And it's hard to think of a more wrong-headed idea to put at the heart of your tentpole, universe-launching superhero movie. It's just, it's absolutely baffling. <laughs> yeah. To start with, I think there was a lot of negative press or negative scuttle bugging, is that a phrase? Yes, <laughs> certainly is now. <laughs> On the internet, just because it seemed like a sort of bad idea to begin with. And the film is built on this premise 
of like who would win if Batman and Superman fought, which is more just a debate comic book fans had yeah. rather than the basis of an actual plot. And so it begs the question, why would these two uh, different but fundamentally good guys fight? And the movie never answers this in a successful way. And the conflicts in the movie arises from people not being fully aware of the situation. It's like they're making mistakes or thinking someone's motivations are different to what they are. Uh, which makes the whole thing weightless. There's no ideological clash. They're not defined well enough as characters for that to really work. No. Um, I mean, it's weird because they spend some time setting up Batman's motivation. And he is actually the pretty much the only major character in the film where you can actually understand why he does anything that he does. Even though it doesn't like, make any sense. Yeah, I mean, well, he, he acts in a way that is stupid often. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but at least you can understand why he's doing it. Yeah. Whereas I have no idea why Lex Luthor was doing, like, almost anything that he did. And Superman makes very few decisions. He is a very passive character in in this movie. And there's a lot of discussion about him. But it's odd that all this time is spent giving Batman a reason to fight Superman. And no time is spent giving Superman a reason to fight Batman. He never really offers a viewpoint on anything. No, he's a bit of a blank. Yeah, he's a total blank. And it's odd because it does seem like you could, you know... One of the things you would do is set up that kind of ideological opposition between the two of them, but they only did it for one person. And there's even a bit where Superman opens his mouth and like is about to utter <laughs> some kind of philosophy or statement or you know explain why you know who he is, and then there's just an explosion. So that's just cut off. Yeah, sort of the movie in a nutshell, really. It is kind of Superman. The, his portrayal in the movie is one of the biggest problems. He is not heroic. He doesn't really do very many things that are heroic. There's a montage of him doing kind of heroic-y, saving people stuff. And it's like really sad and gloomy and weird. (laughs) And it's like... He looks really upset about it. He looks really upset and kind of miserable, like he'd rather be doing something else. And you'd think that it would be celebrating his feats, but instead it seems to view them all as highly suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Like... The act of saving drowning people from a roof is like, whoa, why is he doing that? It's like, he's just gone to save people, you know? And the rest of the time, he pretty much just saves Lois Lane or his mum just repeatedly. A lot of damsels in distress in this movie. Yeah. In a way that's sort of depressing. I think Lois Lois Lane gets rescued three times. Three times, yeah. Yeah, so Superman, as far as he, like, does anything, he kind of acts like a bit of a dick. He's also, he threatens people, he threatens people with violence. And he's, his movement is already violent as well. Like, every time he lands, like, everything cracks around him. He's constantly, like, destroying things. Yeah. <laughs> and Batman is also, a, like, a massive dick. This is, like, the biggest dick Batman we've seen on screen. Like, I understand that he's a kind of tortured soul, normally. And in this version of Batman, it's, like, old Batman. He's even more tortured. It's like, <laughs> he's been in Gotham too long. He's gone a bit nuts, you know? <laughs> and he's, like, now he brands people with the symbol of the bat. And then there's this bizarre line where Alfred is, like, when they're taken to prison, anyone who has that brand is killed. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> and it's, so it's kind of implied that he's deliberately make kids marking them movie. for death. <laughs> he marks sex offenders for death. That's one of the things he does at the beginning of the film. And, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Um, yeah, it's. I think a lot of the blame has been, and maybe like rightly so, laid at Zack Snyder's doorstep. Because a lot of the flaws in this film are evident in his previous work and in Man of Steel. And it's like, he's sort of at the beginning, is like, oh, he's addressing the uh, sort of destruction porn of Man of Steel. But it's like, actually, no. Actually, and he like no. Everything doubles... people hated three times more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so he's this visual stylist who seems very interested in 
characters or stories, and but interested in themes, but he never gets explores them in any coherent or deep way. And yeah. to the point where there's a bit in the movie where just talking heads on the TV screen does like discuss Superman, and like that's as deep as the movie goes. It's yeah. like you, you know you understand it would have made a good pitch, and then he never fought beyond that pitch. He's like Superman. What does he mean when he's here? And it's like I don't know. Do Is you tell he me? God? Is he Christ? What that's would it be it. like if God was here? Would people be worried? Yeah, it's not explored at all. You get the sense that some people in the world don't like Superman, other people like Superman, and that's really it. You sort of get the sense that Superman is a bit unhappy about it. Sometimes he says things, and other people, like, give him advice, which is often very strange. Like, there's one of the many, like, perplexing sequences is suddenly there's a... He, has, he like, goes to an icy mountain, and he's visited by the ghost of his father, who's building some, like, a pile of rocks. <laughs> and he delivers this anecdote about trying to save his farm and accidentally drowning some horses. And the moral of this story appears to be that whenever you try to save anyone, you just hurt someone else. It's like you can't really do it, you know? You save <laughs> someone from being hit by a car, but then they just get hit by a train the next day, so... You know, what's the point? It's very, it's a very odd stance to take on the act of saving people's lives. You know, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people have responded to the movie by concluding that Zack Snyder just hates Superman. Um, and it's easy to see how you can make that conclusion because absolutely he does seem to hate him. Well, the whole notion of someone who represents the most virtuous American that you can possibly be—he's like the emblem of American um, values—who just is all about saving people and doing the right thing for its own sake and is someone for people to look up to is kind of taken in this movie as ignorant or like foolish or in some way short-sighted i think um it's quite interesting with these big juggernaut films because it feels like the actors have been left their own devices with mixed results so um jesse eisenberg is terrible in this film he's really bad <laughs> and he's hamming it up to insane degrees yeah. and you can either view this as he's just like a hack or he's desperately trying to inject some life into the film but either way it's terrible it's a very it's not really a cons- maybe it's because he's not written in a consistent way yeah. and his evil scheme is one of the worst thought i've ever seen in a movie like i just didn't every step of it doesn't make sense yeah it doesn't make any um, sense but he just kind of cackles and, like, he's yelps and he makes constant random literary references and, like, it's just all over the place. And it's like it's like watching an annoying YouTube vlogger. And people have compared him to, like, Max Landis, who we've talked about before, who is, you know, would be kind of annoying if he was a supervillain. And it is, it is a bit like that's his tone, you know? Yeah. It's like Zack Snyder just told him to do more, more, brilliant, more. Like, Henry Cavill, he told to do nothing. Uh, <laughs> Frown. Deeper, Frown. deeper. He's, he's a bit uh, lumping in the role. But I think Ben Affleck actually equips himself quite well. And he was the best thing in the movie. Yeah. And I enjoyed his take on uh, the Batman persona. And I think he made a more convincing Bruce Wayne playboy type than Christian Bale. But that's more to do with Nolan's slightly clinical aesthetic, maybe. Ben Affleck seems like a guy who has sex with women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one in the Christ- Christopher Nolan movie has sex. And so, like, if nothing else, and he had good chemistry with Jeremy Irons, who also managed to squeeze some brevity into the film in his, like, four lines. Yeah. And, yeah, him and um, Jeremy Irons had good chemistry, and I would happily watch a solo Batman movie with them in it. Yeah. And I also think um, Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman 
uh, was very good. Mainly because I think she's the only person who smiles in the film. So when she turns up, she's also got this great, slightly cheesy uh, electro guitar score. Yeah. And it's a bit like she has been catapulted in from a different, much more fun movie. And it's like, oh, thank God, someone here who's can fucking crack she's a smile. She's got some spirit. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I really uh, thought, and yeah, I'd see a Wonder Woman film as well. I thought they were, you know, yeah, I think made that's strong entries. I actually saw a rumor that Ben Affleck rewrote his own lines on the set. Yeah, there was a, there was a news story about that, and he's probably one of the better written characters in the movie, so that would make <laughs> a certain amount of sense. I would say, for all its incoherence, the big problem is tone, and it's just not enjoyable. It's not fun to watch, and yeah, I can, it's not fun at all. There's plenty of films that make no sense, which are just fun, and you can just you know, and it's breezy. But this like is just so oppressively, really, suffocatingly really turgid, yeah. turgid that I w- I watched it purely to have an opinion, and I found it unintentionally funny. But I would, I would only recommend it to someone so I could complain with them. Yeah, it's you leave tired. You yeah. know, it takes a year off your life. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing about it is the conversation that it sparks afterwards, both with like other people who've seen the movie and just the general critical conversation, which I've really enjoyed being a part of because it's such a fascinating failure in so many different ways. And it's also kind of made me a bit more interested in the character of Superman, who I wasn't particularly interested in before. But there's been so much discussion of him that it has made me want to, you know check him out a bit more and see what it's like when it's not a like a total asshole so five stars so five stars <laughs> five thousand stars <laughs> not everything was terrible but almost everything yeah. was terrible i'm named the two things i liked in it <laughs> spoiler alert spoiler spoiler alert watch out spoilers boy. careful spoiler alert spoilers we haven't done a spoiler part of the view, but there are many individual aspects to the movie that you know in a spoiler thing you can be like what the hell is going on but there's one in particular I feel has given has not been given the space that it deserves in the spoiler reviews that I've heard, right? So in one scene, Lois Lane is in a mall and she comes down the escalator and she sees a guy like cleaning and it turns out to be a, a goon of Lex Luthor's from Ooh, earlier in the film. Batman. And in the mall, the song, Every Time We Say Goodbye, I Die a Little, the Cole Porter song, hmm. is like playing in the mall, right? Then, later on in the film, a different kidnapping occurs, <laughs> and this goon says to the second kidnapped victim, just prior to, you know, when he's intending to kill her, he leans in and he's like, every time we say goodbye, you die a little. So, and I don't understand. Well, he's First obviously all, a, like a crazy guy, and that's his tune, that's his mixtape when he's kidnapping. That's his jam. That's his jam. <laughs> yeah, but like... How's he get into the mall speakers? But, yeah, what? How's he playing it on the mall system? He obviously broke into the mall um, studio system. He's like, he killed a bunch of guys. My favorite singer is Ella Fitzgerald. That's what? my favorite song. Yeah, and I'm putting it on because, as a threat, it doesn't make sense. Hmm. He's never said goodbye to her, yeah. and he's not threatening to kill her a little. He's threatening to kill her completely. What would be a better song to put on? Oh, shit. No, this is like a repeat of that Pirates Beatles thing. <laughs> um, how about in the mall, they're listening to these boots are made for walking. Hmm. And then he leans in and he's like, this gun was made for shooting. And that's just what it will do. And now this gun will shoot you. <laughs> all over you. Shoot all over you. <laughs> I think that would have been a bit more threatening. <laughs> What else could it be? How about um, Get Ready by The Temptations? But instead of Get Ready, Get Ready for Love, it's like Get Ready, Get Ready to Die. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. 
this review has gone on slightly longer than the actual film, which is some achievement because I'm pretty sure part of me is still watching that film. But it definitely made more sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it hang- really hangs together in a way the movie does not. Personally, I can't wait for Aquaman. Judging from that five seconds. Are you kidding me? Film. The film to pencil in is obviously Cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the fuck is going on. Aquaman is going to be better than Cyborg, No, it's Danny. not. Only an idiot would be rather seeing Cyborg than Aquaman. <laughs> Stop it. The 22nd clip watching a sort of limbless man in the back of a room. <laughs> Into a board <laughs> while his father plays with a magical cube. Stop it. It did look pretty good, come to think of it. <laughs> so anyway, so Danny and I are going to go and talk about Batman v Superman a bit more. And... Uh, I want you all to have a one. I want you to have a wonderful week, and you better do it. Um, yes. Next week we'll reviewing Zootropolis or Zootopia or Zoomania, depending on the else. world you are. Edit the Eagle Animal Week, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Eagles versus zoos. That's next week. See you then. Because <laughs> zoos famously don't allow eagles in them. <laughs> They'd be an aviary. Yeah. Aviary versus zoos. Stop it. Sorry, we're being. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba told to stop it see you next week listeners goodbye bye